In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to The Art of the Islamic World on the Voice of Islam Radio. My name is Shah Zain Baig and I'm your presenter for today. With me, I have Rizwan Baig, an Islamic calligrapher, and we're delighted to honour our guest, David Kranswick, to our programme. Firstly, David, it's been a pleasure having you on the previous episode and we would like to carry on the conversation. How would you define colour and what is colour? Well, what is colour and how would I define it? Um, gosh. Okay, so <clears throat> colour, when it comes to painting, colour is born out of nature to begin with. It's not something we just is produced in factories. It is an expression of nature. In, of nature. It's an expression of the different minerals that occur in nature and also plant dyes that also um, are extracted from various plants. So um, that's the first thing to understand because often people, people we disconnect from colour so much and we just sort of think it's red is red, blue is blue. But it is not just about its optical aspect. Colour is, is an embodiment, like everything else, colour is an embodiment of something much more than just its outer appearance. So the qualities of colour, the energy of colour, um, if you like, is is more important than the colour itself, you know. Uh, the story, what I call it, what I refer to as the story that lies within colour, that which connects the outer colour, say a blue, with its inner integrity. In other words, with its, with its inner being, what that colour really tells us inwardly. When we look at a colour, we should, we should feel the colour in our body, not just see it with our eyes, we should feel it in our body. And what is that colour? You know, my, my teacher, Cecil Collins, he always said, each colour is a different world. You know, it is something that we go into and experience. Each colour has its own experience and qualities, and a colour can never be fixed. You know, in some cultures, blue is symbolic of this, in other cultures, it's symbolic of that. And people sometimes say to me, you know, what's all this that means nothing is very genuine because they're saying it means this, and then that culture that's saying it means that. It's how it should be because it has so many layers of meaning. We can't restrict it to just one, one layer of meaning. It means so many things, and, um, and it depends on what level you're experiencing it. But it, is, it comes through direct experience. It doesn't come through a formula of reading a book on the symbology of color, and it means this. It is directly experiencing and encountering the mystery of what that color is. Um, so that's one aspect of color. And, and the other aspect um, of color resides in its relationship to the metals from which the colors, all the mineral colors that have been used traditionally in art occur out of different metals within the earth. They, they come from copper, from tin, from lead, from iron, from mercury, um, sil the, um, silver, and gold. We, we have actually got the seven metals, okay? The seven metals, and, and what's beautiful is that each of those seven metals has its correspondence in heaven through the seven planets, the seven visible planets of the solar system. So the seven planets, the seven metals, and the, and, and the multitude of colors that evolve out of that, that, that union or manifestation, you know, the, 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 the um, it, it really is, color really is an embodiment of heaven on earth because they're, they're born in heaven through the heavenly planets. The, 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 the seed of that 
planet, if you like, the qualities of the planet, are within the metals which are uh, laid within the earth. And then out of those metals, all these colors are born. There is a, It's an extraordinary um, you know, it's, um, manifestation of, the, of that divine miracle of, of heaven and earth coming together and how colors are a witness to that that mystery. Wonderful. So that's why, I mean, um, mostly you see in Islamic world as well that the carpets, yeah. they use vegetable dye or vegetable pigments as well. Yeah. And sometimes um, very less or mostly they never use actually mineral colors. Yeah. And uh, as far yeah. as my knowledge from you, mm. that uh, mineral um, colors are here for from million years. Yeah. And another thousand years, they can be survived yep. in the same without any yep. um, any sunlight effect to them. But yep. vegetable colors, please explain that. Yeah. Okay. So the mineral colors, yes, of course, are are very stable because they're already millions of years old. So there's no question, sunlight or darkness, they're not going to change. You know, they they they've been exposed to light for so long, they're absolutely stable. Whereas the plant colors. Um, we have the plant dyes, and when we have the plant pigments, which are precipitated out of the dyes. It's the whole process. You create the dye, and then you precipitate it, and you get the pigment, which falls out of the dye. So you've got solid particles instead of um, liquid solution. Uh, so we have pigments and, and the dyes from the plant colors. Um, they are all somewhat fugitive. Um, in sunlight. So some some plant colors may last a few hours before they start to fade. Some will last a few years and some may last several hundred years. Um, so the ones that we tend that we tend to use in things like the, like the carpets, for instance, one one uses the the more stable colors in the carpets. And, and one of the most famous ones is the the madder, the crimson we get from the madder, the roots of the madder yes. plant, yes. which produces this extraordinary deep red. Um, and and that that that's relatively as plant colors go, it's relatively stable, and and it's a highly prized color. And we use it in painting too. Only in painting we don't use the dye; we precipitate it in alum to 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 actually it then forms a solid particle which we dry out, and we have this 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 crystal becomes a crystal, a red crystal which we grind down and mix with whatever paint medium it may be. It may be egg tempera, so we use the egg yolk. It may be watercolor, so we use the gum arabic. It may be oil, so we use the oil. It can work in all the mediums. And then it's a paint, which is, is even stronger than the dye. Mm. You mentioned color, and color plays an important role in the beautification of art. So how would you define beauty? Oh, how would I define beauty? In relationship to color? Yes, absolutely. And individually as well okay gosh okay well um let's go into goethe goethe okay goethe is a, he he explained the mystery of color so beautifully um before goethe or, i mean he lived at the same time but in the same time newton newton said okay it's, it's quite interesting what we're getting into here we're getting into darkness and light okay out of which the color is born now newton said um, that darkness doesn't exist. You know, it is just the absence of light, but it doesn't actually exist. And, um, and, and, and Newton was doing all these experiments with crystals to show how light passes through it and colors are formed through the passage of light through the crystals. And then Goethe 
was looking very closely at Newton's experiments and went through them all. He's got his own crystals, went through the same experiences and tests and explorations and realized that Newton had made a fundamental mistake. Um, and um, basically, Goethe said darkness does exist. It's a very powerful energy. It's a primal energy. You know, darkness... It's it's interesting that Newton said darkness doesn't exist because darkness is like the ink, you know. It's the wisdom, it's the profound wisdom, and we're we're coming into a time with Newton of modern science where the spiritual is gr- going to be gradually erased out yes. of out of the the whole story. Okay, so Newton already is saying there is no darkness. In other words, the whole mystery of this darkness is not there. We're looking at a world that is completely rational and can be explained by modern science. We can't explain it, we can't prove it, we can't see it under the microscope. It does not exist. Whereas Goethe was saying darkness is absolutely profound and primordial and and is the cause of colour to actually be manifested. He said, Goethe said, when darkness and light come together on that threshold of the union of darkness and light, all the colours are born, all are manifested on that threshold, on that union. So colour is an expression of the union of the opposites. It's very, very profound. And uh, That's <laughs> yeah. amazing, and it's reminded yeah. me of a couplet of Maulana Rumi. Yeah. Rumi mentioned, I'll translate it, In he said that we recognise light through the opposite of darkness, mm. and we recognise happiness due to the opposite of sadness. Yep. But due to God not having any opposite, yep. he remains hidden. Yeah, yeah. Yet he is also manifest. Yeah. And that that's the beauty be- of opposites. That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And and, and, and darkness, you know, I always say light. I mean, light and darkness exist within each other. Light um, is a manifestation of the mystery of darkness. Okay, it, it is darkness and mystery manifested um, and Darkness um, cannot express itself without light, and light cannot exist without darkness. It's the it's the interplay of of the universe. It's the dance of the universe. The opposites coming together, and out of the out of that union, all creation happens. It, it's it's extraordinary. So um, so it brings us back to the ink again. This wonderful um, contemplative quality that uh, of the ink and the darkness of the ink, and how everything is manifested out of that. That is absolutely amazing. Mm. And regarding beauty, mm. what happens when there is an absence of beauty? May that be from art or the world. There's a famous uh, line in the Urdu language where beauty was defined as غلامی کیا ہے se That the lack and absence of beauty is actually slavery. So how would you define the lack of beauty? I would say it's where we live in a world that is dominated by um, dominated by the um, by the rational, by the rational, materialistic approach to life. And if if it if if things are made just for the sake of themselves rather than in reverence to to the divine, then we're we're living in a world of just mass production where nothing means anything in in traditional societies everything is 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 a form of remembrance of the divine reality that resides within everything you know even the buttons the 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 the, the cup and the saucer the the clothing the the patterns the colors everything is a way to remember the inner beauty of the divine you know and so 
Um, and, and so a world without beauty is a world without any um, understanding or contemplation of that inner divine reality. It is absolutely beautiful. Mm. I'd like to ask on a slightly different topic. In Due to your practice of making your own pigments, mm. there's, an, there's also a influence of alchemy. How yeah. do you describe and explain the relationship between art and alchemy? Um, well, the, the processes of grinding and preparing, for me, are fundamental to creativity. It is the journey through which you go, out of which the whatever it is that is being created forms. It forms out of a journey, just like when we plant a seed in the earth. The plant that grows is, is, is born out of a whole process. And we live in a world, again, it's, it's this world without beauty, without without um, any, any re- relevance to the divine, um, where we just want to get there immediately and quickly without any journey. You know, the journey is a waste of time. It costs money. Time is money. We can't, we can't do the journey. We, we, with our technology, we can now manifest it instantly without any journey. You know, that, that to me is insanity. That is total insanity. It is, is, okay, we can, it's like with artificial intelligence. We can create this without any work at all. You know, work is prayer. Work is prayer. That's why work is so important. You know, without work, there is no prayer. So, you know, it's artificial intelligence is just absurd because it is taking out any last remnants of anything potentially you know, the spiritual in our in our lives and it's just destroying everything and I, I to me that is the that is living in in that we are in hell once that really starts to take over we are in hell um, because there is you know work is so profound and so important work and prayer should never be be, be separated work is prayer work is meditation when when one's grinding the rock that is the whole importance of that is to take us into this world of prayer where 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 a mechanical action is not mechanical anymore it is a ritual that is connecting the outer with the inner it, it's it's so hey gosh <laughs> that's why i do it that's why i do it <laughs> Amazing. I would like to mention you when my experience uh, yes. when I went to your course mm. and you mentioned about the clockwise and mm. and anti-clockwise yep. when you are grinding actually yep. your um, material yep. or mediums. Indeed. And uh, there was lot of knowledge behind that that why yeah. you're doing clockwise and yeah. why you're not doing anti-clockwise, anti-clockwise yeah. because when we go for Hajj uh, yeah. to pilgrimage, yeah. Yeah. we do anti-clockwise. Exactly. Yeah. And but in your experience, in 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 your um, yeah. way of uh, making yeah. colors, yeah. when you're grinding it, you yeah. mostly do clockwise. Please yeah. explain yeah. to us. Well, the world uh, is it. What is it? Bra- Brahman. They talk about Brahma. Brahman. Brahma. Brahma. They say, at every outbreath of Brahma, ten thousand universes are born. And at every in-breath of Brahma, 10,000 universes disintegrate and disappear again. So it's appearance and, and, and return to, to the source. Okay, so clockwise is coming into reality, into the world of time and space from that center, which has no time and space. So it's, it is honoring that process of coming into being, coming into creation. So it's not that one is good and one is bad, but to understand energetically what is happening with one. It is one is in a process of coming into being. 
Um, so, um, so and that, what is anti-clockwise? And anti-clockwise is returning to the source, returning to God. God. Okay. okay. So, so of course you go anti-clockwise in Mecca. You know. Yes. Always. Yeah. And the whirling and the dervishes, the whirling dervishes. Yes. I believe they go. They celebrate it by going both directions. Sometimes clockwise, coming into being, and then going back to God again, going anti-clockwise. Wonderful. Um, wonderful. So it is very symbolic. But when in creativity, when we're we're creating and bringing anything into creation, and it's the same with cooking, with stirring your tea in the morning, you go clockwise because you're you're energizing it. You're bringing it into manifestation. It's a celebration of the underlying unity that lies within. It's a celebration of that center. It's a celebration of God by going clockwise because you are participating in that creative principle which is divine. You know, you're honoring that principle of coming into being, coming into creation. The God created the world in 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 six days. You know, it it is honoring that whole miracle and profound nature of of the importance of bringing. Why did God create the world? You know, it's honoring that, and not just honoring it, but by doing it properly and doing it as an actual prayer, you are actually participating in. That create creation. The creation isn't something that happened millions of years ago. It is happening right in the here and now, and we need to participate in it. Not not just um, be separate from it, but participate. Be in. Be one with the creative energy. So yes. we go clockwise when we're creating. At other times, if we're returning, then we go anti-clockwise. In 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 Chartres Cathedral, they have the the. Um, the um, labyrinth, which is underneath the carpet now, but it should, the carpet shouldn't be there, on the floor of the cathedral. And to go into the labyrinth, you, you go one way. I believe it's, 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 it's um, anti-clockwise yes. to go to the center of the labyrinth, and then you get to the center, and then you come out again clockwise because you're coming back into creation. creation. So it's going to God and coming back into the world and hopefully bringing that message. This is amazing again. Mm. And with every process in your art... There's a influence and a remembrance Everything. of the divine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And regarding this, there's several different art forms that you practice. May that be still life, portraits, pigment making. Mm. Um, which art, which art subject is your favorite, personally? Gosh. And I know it's very difficult to ask <laughs> an artist what is their favorite. Yep. It is like asking a mother who is their favorite child. Mm. But what would you say is your favorite, and why? My favorite is going to be, um, I mean, without doubt, it's portraiture. I only hesitate there because for me, everything has the potential for being a portrait. Once one understands portraiture, everything has the potential for being a portrait. If I'm painting a landscape, I, I paint it as a portrait. If I'm painting a flower, I'll paint it as a portrait. But in terms of actual subject matter, I started with portraiture. You know, when, when I was th- three years old in Australia... My my parents had this little photograph of the of the Mona Lisa. It's a little oval photograph, nothing special, probably quite a cheap, poor quality photograph, behind a bit of glass on the mantelpiece, and that was the only painting I'd ever seen uh, at that age. They didn't have any other paintings that I remember, or that certainly they didn't stay in my mind. This one gripped me, and I used to look at it. And I mean, nobody said anything to me about it, but. When I looked at that painting, without, with, you know, I had an experience of God looking at that painting. Because when I saw that painting, it wasn't, it wasn't a human face that I was looking at. It was like I was looking at an energy 
there that was that sort of so vast, such a vast energy, I could almost feel it, I could almost hear it, an energy that is there that was at the beginning of time and that was the cause of everything to become manifested. It was there in that in that in that image. So um, portraiture has always been for me about it's uh, it, it's about you know it's the human face, but it is the the purpose of that human face is to reflect something that goes way 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 beyond the personal face. It is to reflect the universal and timeless within time. Fascinating, absolutely mm. fascinating. And how would we, when we are channeling that energy, um, sometimes the atmosphere is needed. And um, we know that your studio in Sussex is absolutely fascinating in itself. Mm. So could you describe to us your studio? Yes. Well, firstly, it's rather unusual in that it's at the top of the tower in a ruined castle. So already it's uh, <laughs> somewhat unusual. It's a 15th century castle. Um, Queen Elizabeth I used to go there. Even the the, the um, infamous Henry VIII used to go there on many occasions. Um, it's got an interesting history. Um, it's a hexagonal room at the top of this tower. And it's when 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 Lady Lady Cadre was her who who said, let's turn this tower, which is not being used, let's turn it into um, a, a creative environment and you can run your workshops from there. So she, she, she purchased some really lovely old oak easels from France. They're, they're made by Sennelier in France and she purchased these beautiful easels and, and equipped it with, very, with lovely jars of pigments, which I, I told her which pigments I'm using and which ones would be relevant to the studio and a certain number of books and then the mortar and pestles and all the tools of the craft needed for a kind of a medieval workshop because it really is a medieval studio. And when I say medieval studio, I'm, I, I really mean a, a studio that embodies and brings together creativity with alchemy because alchemy really lies at the heart of the creative process. If alchemy's not there, then it's missing the point. Because what is alchemy? Alchemy is the journey of the soul from darkness to light. And if that's not what we're doing when we're creating, you know, it, it is a journey of the soul. It's an inner journey which we achieve outwardly through our developing our skills and understanding and practice and 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 um, reverence and... and um, service all of those things it's 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 an inner practice which we achieve outwardly through the training so alchemy is 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 central to it and these tools that we use the brass mortar and pestle the porcelain the grinding slabs the mullers to grind the pigment on the stone slab all of these things are actually tools that um are there to help us remember you know everything we do in creative is a form of remembering bringing us back to that center and and so the tools of the craft um, are very important. And when you're in a studio that is surrounded by these tools, whether you understand it or not, you know, these are archetypal. The mortar and pestle is an archetypal object. It's not just something, you know, it means nothing. You look at a mortar and pestle, even if you're a little kid and you've never seen one before, you you will your your head may not be able to your head will go into a spin, but your heart will be excited by it. You know, because there's something in that is so primordial. It is about, again, it's about the union of heaven and earth coming together. The mortar, the container, is, 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 is again, it's the feminine principle. It's the wisdom. It's the timeless. 
and and formlessness and then the pestle is the activating principle that brings that the mystery of that timelessness into the world of time and space so when we're using the the pestle in the mortar grinding up the rocks or whatever we are doing we're creating plant colors whatever we're doing all of those things are are a rem, rem, reminding us it's a form of remembrance you know which takes us right into that quality of being rather than doing you know it's out of duality into oneness of being thank you so much for that david it's time for a short break after which we'll carry on our conversation please join us straight after this break assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh the holy quran states allah is the light of the heavens and the earth an-nur is that being through whose light a physically blind person sees and a person who has gone astray finds guidance it is that being who is apparent and through whom all things are manifested his being is apparent in himself and makes things evident for others as well The true light is God which can be perceived in everything by those with insight However one who is devoid of spiritual sight cannot see it A believer is firm on the belief that the universe that can be observed as well as the universe that cannot be observed is created by God in order to give an understanding of this light God sends his chosen people who spread the nur which comes down from the heavens throughout the world the promised messiah on whom be peace writes that light of high degree that was bestowed on perfect man was not in angels was not in the stars was not in the moon was not in the sun was not in the oceans or the rivers was not in rubies or emeralds or sapphires or pearls in short it was not in any earthly or heavenly object it was only in perfect man whose highest and loftiest and most perfect example was our lord and master the chief of the prophets the chief of all living ones muhammad the chosen one peace and blessings of allah be on him the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be on him set the most excellent example and the highest standard of nur which was established as a reflection of the light of god and which will continue till the day of judgment the nur he received was conveyed to his companions and established excellent morals amongst them so much so that he likened them to the stars after the holy prophet 
peace and blessings of Allah be on him. The reflection of God's light was the promised Messiah on whom be peace. This was due to complete subordination of his master. Not only did God fill the promised Messiah on whom be peace with Nur that was sent down more than 1,400 years ago, he also granted him the station to spread this Nur. The promised Messiah on whom be peace wrote that no one knew him and God compelled him out of his solitude and told him that he would bestow upon him honor and make him renowned all over the world. It is a way of God that when he adorns someone with nur, he manifests it to the world. After all, when the worldly light has a capacity to spread, how can the light of God stay hidden? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. Welcome back to the Art of the Islamic World on the Voice of Islam radio, where we're having a fascinating discussion with David Cranswick. David, teaching is an extremely important and vital part of an artist's journey. What drew you to teaching and what allowed you to evolve in your journey of teaching? Um, gosh, what drew me to teaching? I like the expression, what drew me, because to do with drawing, you know. <laughs> drawing, which is to bring something out. It's not putting something onto the surface, it's bringing something out from within. So uh, we forget that when we're drawing. We think, oh, no, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But actually, we're drawing something out. So that's what, a teach, that's what teaching is all about. It's about drawing out and helping students to draw out the wisdom that is there buried within. Yep. Please. So teaching for me, I mean, I, when I was training under Cecil Collins, to what really where my real training started after I finished the Royal Academy, um, you know, a few, few people were saying, oh, David, you should teach, you should teach. And I, was, uh, I mentioned to Cecil, I'd say, Cecil, what do you think? Do you think I should teach? He said, not yet, not yet. And I asked him a few times over the years. <laughs> Always he'd say, not yet. Um, because, uh, because teaching... You have to be at a certain point before you can teach. Otherwise, what are you teaching? I tried teaching once when I was, I don't know, years and years before that. Uh, I think before I even went to the Royal Academy, uh, in a, or was, maybe it was just after. But, you know, I kind of, you know, three years at the Royal Academy doing an MA, I kind of knew nothing. And I tried to teach. And, okay, I could draw a, an image. Yeah, okay. But to, to teach it? I realized I was running a small private class and I, I, I was not inspired by it. I didn't get anything out of it. I'm sure they got nothing out of it and it was a mess. But later, you know, after studying under Cecil, um, and you've got to remember, I didn't just go to Cecil. I was sent to Cecil by my Sufi teacher. I was ordered to go um, and, and destroyed in the process, cut to pieces and ordered to study under Cecil that he would teach me everything. Um, and so, of course, I had no choice. And because whatever the teacher said, I would. If she, if she said, I want you to climb the top of the roof of that building over there and jump, I would have done it. I had that much trust and, and, and love of her wisdom that I, I literally would have done it. 
Um, she may have stopped me at the last minute, but I would have done it. <laughs> but come to it. So she sent me to Cecil. I didn't want to go to Cecil. I really didn't, uh, which is probably a good sign. At least in my world, it come, it's always been a sign when there's something I'm resisting, and then I do it. And anyway, it was it was very profound what he was teaching. Um, extremely. Nowhere else was anyone teaching like that. Um, it was the opposite of any academic training that he was giving. It was a very esoteric training. Um, but anyway, to come come back to the teaching, the question. So Cecil died in 1989, and I'd been with him by then for nearly five years. Um, and then I got a, about two months later, I got a call from the Royal College of Art. I couldn't get any work anywhere. I, you know, I was penniless. I, I was probably on the dole. And, um, you know, I was writing here, there and everywhere to try and get some sort of teaching in adult education centres, youth centres, art schools, whatever. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing. I couldn't even get a job, you know, in the local shop. Um, no, nobody wanted me. And then out of the blue, within within a couple of months of Cecil dying, I get a call from the Royal College of Art, can you come and teach? You know, it's, oh. I mean, and anyway, I was still sort of thinking, can I teach? Anyway, they they told me to come and teach a whole week to, to the MA students at the Royal College. So I was really um, unsure. I mean, I, I accepted, but I thought, can I do it? And I was in a, in a bit of a feverish state building up to it. And I was writing and rewriting my, my script of what I was going to say in my introductory talk. Um, and every everything I wrote didn't make any sense. When I'd read it again, having spent three or four hours writing it up, I'd look at it and tear it up and throw it away. Nothing made any sense. And the night before the teaching, um, I had a dream, um, which to me is a, in a sort of a initiation kind of dream to show that I am now ready to teach. Okay. Firstly, I didn't want to teach. Secondly, I was terrified of teaching. But then I had this dream, and I was at the Royal College, and I was in the room teaching at the front of the room, teaching the students. Um, I was completely, I was completely, I was naked and completely covered in mud from top to toe. I was just covered in mud. And at the back of the room, there was a, um, what are those things that go like that for, for musicians to keep? The pendulum. Pendulum thing. There was a yes. pendulum. At the top of it, there was uh, an eye. That metrotome. Was going, metrotome. Yes. And it was going from left to right. And there was this eye. It was one of, an eye out of one of Cecil's paintings. He always talked about the eye of the heart in his teaching. He said, what we have got to do is, is open up the eye of the heart through these practices, these te very highly technical uh, training that he was giving to open up the eye of the heart. So at the back with this metronome with the eye on it going left and right. Again, it's the repetition of left and right is sort of almost mesmerizing. And this eye, and I was covered in mud and um, it wasn't particularly in the dream what I was teaching. It was just being present and there in this sort of like the mud is like the primordial earth you know I am I am the earth I'm an embodiment of the earth and there's the eye of the heart and I kind of that was the beginning of my teaching and in teaching uh, as practitioners of the Islamic calligraphy tradition uh, there's a great role of the master student relationship mm. because it's believed that the secrets yeah. of the art is inside of the master and is then passed on to the student yeah. As um, the fourth caliph, Sayyidina Ali, 
May Allah be pleased with him. He said that Al-Khattu Makhfiyun Fi Ta'alimul Ustad, that the, the secrets of calligraphy is mm. hidden inside yeah. the master. So what role do you think the master-student relationship plays in an art, for an artist, for a student and a teacher? It's essential. That relationship is essential. That's why I don't really believe in art schools, because because there is no real master there who's qualified. Yeah. So that that transmission is is it, it's everything. The real teaching is always transmitted. It's never through the words or whatever that the teacher is giving. In fact, Cecil Collins very rarely spoke much at all. Um, and it is very, and he talked about transmission, you know, and the importance of transmission, and how his knowledge, he said, is never my knowledge. It it comes, it's it's timeless. It comes from way back. It's a transmission from master to pupil, master to pupil. And he talked about the importance of looking into the eyes of looking into the eyes of you know you look into the eyes of me and I've looked into the eyes of so and so he looked into the eyes and he took me back right into the the early Renaissance so through the contact of the eyes as well. So that was interesting. That was just in a I was driving him through London and we'd had this conversation about transmission and and the transmission of knowledge. And there is something that through the eyes because I know with my in my Sufi training too there was something things are done through the eyes. And you can, I've experienced things in my body as a result of this tremendous power of um, energy that comes through the eyes. Uh, but of, of course, the heart is the real seat of wisdom and transmission. Um, so, yeah, art cannot be taught, really. You can teach technique, but and, and you can push people in different directions so that they veer away from a completely egotistical approach to doing something. So they, they, they are given the possibility of becoming surrendered, which is absolutely crucial. Um, but ultimately, you cannot teach. You, it, the wisdom is within, and the teacher is bringing out that wisdom that is there within. And he's just trying to break down, like like Michelangelo, break down those objects, those those hard rocks which are preventing that from coming through. Amazing. Again, absolutely amazing. And one part of the process that we have talked about is pigment making mm. and the use of tools. Now, in a commercial world, what we see is that many individuals, they seek out their artistic materials by going to the closest store. And there's no connection between the artist and the material. So what effect, ill effect, I would say, has the use of ready-made materials had and what is the importance of making your own materials? Um, well, the ill effect of not making your own materials is it's multiple. Firstly, firstly, the processes of making your own paints is not just um, to save money. You know, some people might say, well, why would I want to do that? Why don't I just go to the shop? It's much quicker to go to the shop. Well, firstly, it is not about making saving money because, of course, it is a bit cheaper to buy pigments and, and then grind them yourself, but it is nothing to do with that. It is, it is, firstly by working with the pigments, by learning how to grind them down and 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 prepare them and make them into a, a suitable paint, whatever the medium one is working in. You are understanding the qualities of that pigment. Um, you're understanding how to how it can be refined. How it is if you add a little bit more oil or a little bit less oil, add a little bit of wax into it, add a bit of this or about that. You learn about cooking and all the all the, the subtleties of of preparing. You buy things from a shop. It's like fast food. You know, you go to the supermarket and it's already cooked. You've just got to put it into the microwave. It's it's you know it, it's hell. I think 
I think I I know if ever I go, and I've heard in funny stories, interesting stories. Sometimes you go to hell and you don't realize you're in hell. You know, I think if I go to hell <laughs> when I die, if I find myself in a room with a microwave, I think, oh no, I'm in hell, <laughs> because it just, but it just, it just makes a mockery of our connection with nature. You know, nature, all food comes out of nature, all pigments come out of nature, and if we don't learn to cook, you know, it's one of the fundamental passages of life to learn. Firstly, how food grows, and in terms of painting, where pigments come from in the earth, how they can be extracted from rocks and plants, and and the different ways of preparing it through different mediums. That that's the cooking. If you don't go through cooking, then it's it's like oh, you you know that's the fundamentals of life. That wisdom, that knowledge that comes out of that will affect everything else you do. Not just in painting, in other subjects too. Even even in, in being polite and kind and compassionate to other people, it'll it'll get into everything. If you don't go through those things and you become disconnected from nature, disconnected from yourself, you become a miserable person who has got no compassion, no time, no pa- patience for anyone. Um, you know, it's so fundamental to make your own paints. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that, as we said earlier, all these aspects of the craft are a form of prayer. Constant prayer, constant repetition of prayer. Now, if you take the prayer out of out of paint, where are we? You know, Amazing. where are we? <laughs> My God, your whole journey towards your experience and knowledge mm. about pigment and painting make is all connected to spirituality. Yeah. So please give us some more understanding about your knowledge about spirituality. Right. Well, hmm. so um, it brings me back to my when I was at art school, my first term at art school, for instance, because um, for me, art was whether, I, you know, it wasn't even an intellectual idea. I just knew that art is about is, is a fundamentally spiritual activity, whether you're painting spiritual subjects or not. I saw everything as potentially spiritual. If I'm painting a a rock spiritual, you know, but the the, the challenge is to connect with that spiritual nature and and reflect the miracle of that spiritual nature within, you know. Um, but everything was spiritual. So at art school, I, I was starting to question. I, in my first term at art school, I was already thinking, I seem to be drifting away from why I'm here, why I'm on a human being on earth in this life. What am I doing? If it, is it just about making good paintings where people say, oh, that's great? Um because that never interested me to make a great painting and become famous, and you know that. In fact, that would worry me a lot because um, I'm, I'm I'm skeptical about fame. Um, just sorry, it just reminded me of something I said to my Sufi master on that subject. I, she said, "One day you will be a great artist," and I said, "But I don't want to be famous." She said, "I didn't say famous. I said great." So there is a big difference between great and famous. One is on the level of the ego, and one is on a different level altogether. But to come back to, 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 I was at the art school, and um, I said to I, I said to my the head of the painting department, I said, if art is about understanding oneself and the universe, um, why am I painting? How is painting going to take me there? Why don't I just go to Tibet and become a yogi, live in a cave in Tibet and become a yogi? Why? Why not? What's stopping me? So he told me a story. 
um, which was it, it was a clever answer because if he just said, "Oh no, well you probably wouldn't get very far in Tibet, and I don't think you'd make a great yogi," I would have gone there instantly. But <laughs> he gave me a story. He sort of gave me a carrot. And he told me the story of the woodcutter, um, which I still contemplate that to this day, the different sort of aspects of meaning within it. So this woodcutter, he's, all his life he was trained, his, his job was to cut trees, and he was an expert woodcutter. And he was chopping down this tree one day, and um, he saw in the corner of his eye there was something so beautiful in the bushes, in the shadows of the bushes, something so beautiful, a creature so beautiful, that he had to have it. Um, so he decided um, at the next swing of the axe, because he knew he wouldn't be able to catch it, um, instinctively he knew that the only way to have it was to chop off its head. So um, don't look at that too rationally. Okay. Um, so he decided the next swing of the axe, he would swing out a little bit wider and take off the head of this creature. So he was just about to swing, and the creature spoke and said, I, I hear you're going to co chop my head off. So he realized then, I can't do it. He, he, the, the, the creature is conscious of what I'm going to do and made me more conscious of what I'm doing, and I cannot do it. So then he was in a dilemma. I can't possess this creature, and yet I can't live without it. What, what am I going to do? I'm helpless, you know, totally. Um, so he realized, well, the only thing I'm trained in is chopping. So I will just do my work. I will chop the tree. That's that's my skill. And I'll just surrender completely to my work without trying to get anything else. Just focus on perfecting my art. So he, he's picked up the axe again and swung it to chop the tree in, in his perfect manner. And in the swing of the axe, um, the head of the axe slipped off the wood flew through the air and took off the head of the creature. So it happened incidentally to the surrender to his craft. And chopping the head off, by the way, in like for instance in a dream, when the head is chopped off, you are all you're doing is chopping off your projection of that and you're integrating it into yourself. So don't worry too much about the fact that this creature got his head chopped off. <laughs> but it's it was that that gave me the clue that maybe within the craft and 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 skillful practices one learns in the craft, um, there is the possibility, if you surrender to it, that that within there um, is a a possibility of union with God. Wonderful in that surrender. It's a bit like in the Zen stories, they, the, the, the monk um, goes to the master and says, how do I get enlightened? And the master says, have you washed out your bowl? And, and, the, and the monk says, no, he said, well, go and wash your bowl. You know, do what you can do. Surrender to the moment of whatever you are doing. Surrender completely to the moment and do it completely with all your love and devotion without any trying to get anywhere out of it or achieve anything from it, just surrender to the task, and out of that surrender is enlightenment. And live in the present. And live in the present. So that, that again, comes back to this whole process, um, like, Razwan, when you were in my studio and I was teaching you the other yes. week, and I was reminding you to grind the, um, the pigments clockwise, yeah? Because clockwise, as we said in the earlier talk, that clockwise is bringing... It's the creative energy coming into being, into manifestation from non-being. So clockwise is quite important. But also, you know, on another level, by having these practices, these 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 aspects of the training, um, to remember to do it in this way and giving significance to different ways of doing it, um, it is bringing you into the present moment because 
it's how commonly we do something and don't even realize, remember, or are aware of what we're doing. So many people, you know, students of mine, I tell them to go clockwise and five minutes later they're going anti-clockwise. <laughs> so it's a way also, you know, it's, again, it is bringing you into the present moment because you cannot create if you're not in the present moment. You, you cannot. It's impossible. Creativity is the present moment. It comes out of the present moment. The, the present moment, if you like, is the center of the circle and it is the world of time and space in union as one, an expression one within the other. That is the present moment. Amazing. David, on yeah. a final note, <laughs> many of our listeners will be listening and just as I have been, they must be extremely inspired by your amazing knowledge and your amazing aspect of art. So to any aspiring artists or practicing artists or individuals who are just appreciate they appreciate the art yeah. what advice would you give to them well you see art or creativity is is a path of love you know you cannot create without love you know it's the love that carries us through and is that energy that brings makes things beautiful so don't worry about making mistakes making a mess enjoy just draw with the pencil draw make colors with the paint and explore painting or any sort of creativity is coming from the known into the unknown you're not you're leaving the known behind because as long as you're in the known you're repeating what you know from the past and bringing the past into the into the oh. present so you have to let go of the known and it's a constant stepping into the unknown so surrender all those judgmental things oh what if i get this wrong what if it doesn't look any good just enter into the the mystery of not knowing and allow the pencil to know you know allow allow the brush to know let it come from there rather than from you that is extremely inspiring and it's been a pleasure today to have you here david and I would like to say to the audience and our, to our listeners that it's been a pleasure having David, a man who has reached the zenith of his art through surrendering himself to the remembrance of the divine. And I'd like to end on a couplet by Rumi where he said, Yadi'u sarmaya'i imabuvad Hargada as yadi'u sultabuvad The remembrance of the divine is the foundation of belief for it turns the beggars into the kings. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> Rumi is my hero, by the way, so I love <laughs> hearing any quotes from Rumi. <laughs> thank you very much, David. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners here today. And I'd like to thank my presenters and my panelists, including Mr. Rezwan Beg and David. Thank you very much for everyone listening. And we hope to see you next time on the Arts of the Islamic World. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all.